there's always going to be improvements to make. That's kind of the, the MO of being a business owner is you're just going to be making improvements across all different apartments. You have to then assess like how much time is it going to take? And then how much is that going to essentially improve revenue in the long run? Mobile car detailing has a low barrier to entry, and that makes it a great choice for aspiring entrepreneurs starting on a shoestring budget. I'm your host, Alex Freeman, and my guest today is Isaiah Barhoom, who started Biggs Mobile Detailing with just $500 while he was still in high school. He's since scaled his business to the high six figures, and he's sharing how he did it in this episode. Upflip interviewed Isaiah on our YouTube channel last summer to hear how he started his business. Now I'm following up to find out how he's grown his revenue, what's changed over the past year, and how to build the systems and team you need to scale a mobile detailing business. Isaiah, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to talking with you. So for our listeners who haven't seen your interview on our YouTube channel, can you talk about your background and when and why you started a mobile detailing business? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, my background, I am from the Seattle, Washington area, uh, more specifically up in the North End, up in uh, like the Linwood, Mojotillo area. And I started a mobile auto detailing business just really because, you know, I was a high school student when I started it and I was working at a local shop and, you know, I wanted to make more money. I wasn't able to get more hours at the shop. Uh, you know, the, the managers didn't necessarily want to change up the schedules and whatnot. So I started just, you know, doing it on the side, I saved up about $550 in my bank account. I pulled up 500 of it, had about 50 bucks left to my name and, uh, yeah, bought all the, nece- all the necessities and, and went from there. I absolutely love that. And so so in the last year since we did the YouTube interview, how, have there been any significant changes to your business since then? You know, I think significant changes, yes. No, nothing in the sense of changing up what we do um, more so, and, and really not a lot of change in our services and what the public sees, but I would say on the back end in terms of our management, the team that we have, the software that we're using, and really just kind of growing. We've, you know, we've grown since then and ch- kind of changed up the back end. So that's essentially the, the big changes that have happened in the past year. Did growth dictate the changes to the back end or, do you, or did it go in the reverse? Like, did you, do you feel that you changed up the systems on the back end, which unlocked growth potential? Which way do you think that went? I think they both happen simultaneously. I think we're, we're relatively picky as far as who we try to hire. And we have a unique type. You know, our auto detailing position is relatively unique. So it's not easy to just add employees and grow. And so for us, the growth came just be, by finding the right people that we could say, okay, we can, we can bring you on and finding ways to retain people better and, and growing just kind of organically that way. That growth and revenue, it enabled us to bring more managers on the team. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say that one necessarily drove another one. Um, I think the growth happened organically uh, just by finding new team members to bring on. And the, the back-end changes happened, I guess, also organically because we, we saw things that could be improved, whether we would have grown or not. I think those things would have still shown themselves that need to be improved. So on that revenue growth front, the last time we talked, your goal in 2022 was, was a revenue goal of $750,000. Um, are you on track to hit that goal? Yeah, we should be on track this year to hit that. I would say, you know, it's coming slower than expected. I think this year I was hoping to maybe go above and beyond that, but I think we should be right around that number this year. 
but you know, projected to go significantly higher than that next year. I think it's just now starting to hit the stride where we could say, okay, that's that's a number that we could feel comfortable aiming towards right now. But if you would have asked me three or four months ago at the start of 2022, I probably would have told you, eh, that's a stretch goal. But right now, kind of where we're sitting, you know, as the summer ramps up and as our team has has finally hit its stride and as far as the size and the volume that it's doing, that should be where we're at. And are you still putting all of your revenue back into the business or have you started taking a profit? Yeah, right now we are because I'm, you know, trying to look into how we can expand, you know, past Seattle and always improving our equipment, trying to, you know, pay our pay our guys as, as well as we can, especially on the management side and and also on the detailing side. So right now it's it's really continuing to double down on the employee experience, employee retention, um, supporting software, supporting tools, and the equipment and products that we're using out in the field. What kind of profit margins are you currently looking at? Like I said, I'm not really taking anything home at the moment. But if you were to say I wasn't focused on trying to improve internal business stuff and just kind of sticking with what we had, I think detailing is usually around a 20, you know, 20%, 30% profit margin, depending on how you structure it. And you mentioned that if the uh, you know the beginning of the year things maybe revenue was a little bit more flat, um, and you're starting to see that kind of pick up again. What do you think is driving the revenue growth for your business? So for me, it really has a lot to do with just capacity in our team size. So I think the summertime, the summer season, definitely helps, as you would imagine. That's going to help a lot. But our biggest bottleneck has always been the amount of detailers that we have. Like I said, our detailing job description is fairly complex. It's not a standard clock in, clock out type of thing. So for that reason, it's hard to find people that fit the mold and that want to stick with that position for a long time. So for us, the growth really came by, okay, we found someone good for the job and they're going to be here for a while. We found another person that's you know going to double our revenue now. Okay. We found another person that's going to increase it in another 50%. We found another person and it really just came to how many employees we had uh, on our end. And I want to go back to, to talking about, you know, you just talked about kind of updating a lot of systems on your back end and all of that. And so I want to kind of talk through that process a little bit more specifically. One, I guess let's go back to, to 2017 when the company tried to scale and you nearly went bankrupt. Why, why weren't you ready to scale then and what's different now? I think the big reasons we weren't ready to scale Really, we didn't have anything. <laughs> we, we all we had was a website and tools and like physical items and you know a phone number. And I think we had a very simple online booking platform that you could schedule appointments, almost like uh, almost like Calendly, where you can schedule a, a meeting with someone, like that type of thing. So we really didn't have anything. We didn't have any you know managerial roles. We didn't have any, um, you know, complex spreadsheets to help track our data and keep everything organized. We really didn't have much on the back end. So that was really what the issue was. It was trying to bring on employees and scale and everything without having a system for how to handle upset customers, how to, you know, handle refunds and collect payments properly and make reorders of inventory and manage inventory levels. Everything was just off the cuff which works when you have one or two or three people. But once you get to five, six, seven, it doesn't really work. 
So then, so then that that begs the question of what systems or processes does a mobile detailing business have to have in place before they even start to think about scaling? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the biggest one is some type of online booking, like a robust online booking platform, something that works well for them. That's really the biggest one. There's a ton out there, but you really have to find which one fits best for you. Once you have that, I mean, that'll manage your customers, that'll manage your service types and stuff like that. Then it comes down to how do you efficiently manage inventory and make sure you're always stocked up, but not overstocked. So you're not spending a bunch of money on equipment that you don't really need for another three or four months, because that money could be used for marketing or stuff like that. Then another big one would be managing your payment collection as well as, you know, so payment collection from customers, as well as payment distribution to your employees. So depending on how you structure your pay and your wages, if you go with a simple hourly wage, it's pretty straightforward. You just calculate people's hours, you know, multiply it by their hourly wage, send them a paycheck. But if you have a more commission-based compensation structure, then that might get a little bit more complicated. And trying to calculate that as you scale for every single job that you do might get more difficult. So depending on how complicated your compensation structure is for your employees, you'll have to have some type of system for that. That makes it very easy for them. So I think those are some of the main things is managing your appointments, managing your customers, managing your inventory, and managing your employees. That's some of the big kind of core aspects. So then talk me through through developing those systems uh, and kind of what are you considering and looking at as you start to build out those systems? And then we'll we'll talk about, I've got further questions about refining those systems once they're in place, but I'm curious about that initial, okay, how are we going to develop the way we handle payroll, the way we bill our customers, all that? For me, it's, it's always come down to, and I, I don't know if I used this kind of terminology last time, but it's kind of a three-step thing where I think of simplicity, which can lead to standardization, which can lead to automation. So if I'm looking at changing an internal process, I'm thinking about how simple is it going to be? Because if it's not simple enough, it's going to be difficult to standardize it and make sure everyone's doing it properly. And then if I can't standardize it and make sure it's done the same way every time, then it's going to be impossible to automate it. If it's going to be different every single time, it's, it's going to be impossible to automate that process. And so when I'm looking at software systems or services and and whatnot, I'm always looking at, okay, how simple is whatever I want to get out of it? How simple is that? How simple is that product that it's providing me? And if it's simple enough for for me to use, for my customers to use, then I can make it, you know, something that's standard for my employees or my customers to use and and potentially automate it with different, you know, other, other systems. So every software is different. And every process is different and every department of your business is different. But at a very high level, it all comes down to simplicity, standardization, and automation. How do you start to refine those systems as they come into place? And like, how do you measure the, the learning curve? Obviously, you're looking at simplicity from the beginning, but the learning curve of implementing versus how much time it may be saving you down the road. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I guess two questions there. Um, how do you refine the systems and how do you determine, you're, you're essentially asking the ROI. If I'm going to invest this many of my employees' hours into learning it and transitioning from one to another, how do I determine if it's going to be worth it? 
refining the systems, that just comes down to trial and error sometimes. That's <laughs> just, let me just break it a bunch of times and, okay, someone, someone messed this up. What was the reason they messed this up? Was it due to them not having the proper training on it? Or was it due to the, the tool that I gave them not being robust enough or consistent enough and that sort of thing? So as far as refining processes and systems, that's a lot of kind of going back to what you were saying. Sometimes the growth leads to the change in internal processes. Sometimes if you go from $50,000 a year to $100,000 a year, you see, okay, there's two dozen more issues that I ran into. And then you go from 100 to 500 and then you see, okay, this is a, there's a bunch more issues I ran into. So I think as we grow, we find more and more issues and that helps us refine the tools that we're using and the processes we're using. Your second question around the ability to assess if it's a worthwhile you know, investment, essentially, it really comes down to there's always going to be improvements to make. That's kind of the, the MO of being a business owner is you're just going to be making improvements across all different departments. You have to then assess like how much time is it going to take? And then how much is that going to essentially improve revenue in the long run? It's really a case by case basis. You just, you just have to look at it and see, okay, to switch, to switch from this platform to this platform is going to take me two weeks. How much of it can I do myself? How much of my employees time is it going to take? And then what's the final, what will the change look like? Is it going to increase revenues by uh, allowing new services? Is it going to increase revenues by, or maybe it'll decrease costs by, you know, making sure that our customers pay more frequently and we don't miss any payments? Or maybe it'll increase revenue by allowing us to make sure our inventory is fully stocked at all times because right now we're losing $1,000 a week because we can't do certain jobs because our people are under-equipped. So you have to kind of look at each scenario and see what's the problem we're trying to solve or what's the opportunity we're trying to, to gain. How much is that opportunity or problem worth? And then how much time do I have to invest? And then you just pick and choose. You just... There's always going to be about a dozen things you could do in a given day. And then you just have to constantly reorder them based on the the highest ROI and then kind of different timelines that are needed. So you've just been, so, I mean, you've just been going through this process. You mentioned you've, you've upgraded a lot of your systems and software uh, since the last time we talked. So what, what new software have you been implementing? Yeah, a lot of it is stuff that I kind of custom build. So a lot of our stuff we use. Uh, on the back end is stuff that I build through, you know, various spreadsheets or connecting different systems through, I don't know if you ever used uh, uh, Zapier before, but it's just, you know, using stuff like that where you can connect different products together to, to automate certain things. That's a lot of what we've done over the past year. And then also, you know, I, I have a data, you know, data visualization and data analytics background. So I'm constantly, you know, building different databases and connecting them to different dashboards. So then our employees can have access to, to data visualization tools that help them see what they need to do, you know, what, what they've been missing and help them with their managerial tasks. So a lot of it is through, we, we use a lot of Google products. So Google sheets, Google docs, Google data studio. Um, that's that we lean heavily on Google and then just connect a lot of stuff to where it's, Everything's talking to it to each other, and everything's kind of one interconnected system uh, for our managers to use. 
And do you think that there's uh, something to be said for starting from out-of-the-box solutions and then using Zapier or other tools to get them to, to speak to each other in a way that is custom to the company as opposed to, you know, developing custom software can become a very expensive endeavor and maybe not the road that a lot of entrepreneurs should be heading down initially? Yeah, and this is something I've debated with myself for a while is, you know, basically what you're asking is, hey, I could go build this app or build, a, you know, something, some, I could custom build and I could pay 50, 100, 200 grand for a custom built application for my business. And it's going to be awesome. Or you could go the route that I've gone, which is I'm going to build this all myself through a system of spreadsheets and documents and yada, 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 connect everything and kind of do it the, the, the kind of scrappy way, I guess. So that, that, that's essentially kind of what it's come down to for me is, yes, I could. So two things. With the, with the custom app building, my biggest drawback with that currently is that I want to build my business and my processes and how we operate first. I want to build that as, a, as an entity and as a, a system of, of processes before I invest all the money into an application, because once I do that, it's hard to change things. If I want to, if I want to say we do things this way, and then I'm going to build an app around that, but then wait three weeks from now, we want to do things differently, but we already have this app that we built. I don't want to pay the software developers another $10,000 to change the app based on how we've just changed our business practices. That's kind of my concern with building an app right now is I want to get the business side fully functional and then say, okay, this has been running the same way for over a year. I'm pretty confident it's going to stay this way for the next five or 10 years. Now I'm going to build the app to help, you know, make the experience better for customers and employees and all that stuff. And so then, uh, you know, you're a business that is in the midst of scaling, but once a business has, you know, set up the the systems and processes that they need to get ready to scale, how do you, how do you plan and set goals for growth? And what are those components of of a smart growth goal for an auto detailing company? I don't think I have a specific way that I set growth goals, to be completely honest. I, I do have a robust kind of profit model document, so I can see, okay, if I adjust XYZ variables, how is that going to affect our profit margins? And that kind of projects growth in the sense of if if we do get to this amount of revenue... You know, how many detailers are we going to need for that? What's our overhead going to look like? How's that going to affect our bottom line? So on and so forth. So we have models for that, but I don't necessarily have a model for what a reasonable growth expectation is. I think a lot of that is just kind of feeling out what has changed over year to, you know, year over year and feeling out, okay, we grew this much this year. Here's what's driving our growth. Is it because we're just, pouring a bunch into marketing? Is it because we are having, you know, retaining customers better? Is it because we've increased our prices or increased our volume? So trying to figure out what the year over year changes are, or even, you know, you know, quarter over quarter and seeing how things are trending. That's, that's a little bit more, you know, that that's more of how I'd like to do it. Great. So I want to kind of shift our conversation a little bit over to to marketing and just kind of just as the generic opener for this this section of the interview. What are you, what are kind of your top marketing tools or strategies that you're using currently? Um, and how has that maybe changed since as you started growing the business? My big thing has been really just leaning on the experts. I think for the first 
what it's been eight years now that we've been in business. Um, so I guess for the first seven years, I really try to you know do it myself. Like you said, at the start of the podcast, shoestring budget, I had to learn what all the different terms meant. I had to learn really all the different avenues of marketing at a basic or foundational level, but I was an expert in none of them. So that was kind of how we started. I think now that we've got a little bit more budget, we've been able to bring people in and, and hire employees and whatnot that actually have expertise in different areas of marketing. And so that expertise on the team has helped us market more efficiently. So that's that's really the, the main thing that's changed over the past year in terms of marketing is is being able to just bring experts in and put them in the right seats. Is Yelp still your top performer? I wouldn't say so. I think they're they're up there. Yeah, I, I guess they, they they are. But I think Google and Facebook are, are catching up a little bit. Great. Let's. I mean, so let's talk about both of those. And we'll take them in turn. What is the best way to utilize Facebook and Facebook ads as a small business? I think one that we've seen a good amount of success in with a fairly small budget has been using Facebook ads to drive likes and follows to our page on our Facebook page. We haven't done it for our Instagram page, really. We're trying to do that a little bit more organically. But for the Facebook page, that's that's been fairly successful for us. The remarketing and... Yeah, I guess that's really all you can do on Facebook is remarketing. That's been fairly successful for us. Defining your audiences properly, that, that's really the main benefit. As far as content goes, that's kind of hit or miss. Depends on your industry type of thing and you know, depends on who you're, you're targeting. But... I think being specific with the audiences that you're targeting is something that's helpful, whether it's Facebook or Google. And that's one thing that, you know, I I would say that you don't get with Yelp is that you are not able to define your audiences very uh, specifically. So that's one of the main benefits of Google and Facebook. And so for both of those, really trying to look at your data and see which types of affinity groups, which types of interests are interacting with your pages the most and and trying to target them is the most helpful. What ways are you utilizing Google ads? And then what is the kind of typical spend in a month on Google ads? And how are you maximizing your return on that investment? From my understanding, there's two different essentially categories. You've got display ads and you got search ads. Display ads are usually remarketing where, you know, someone goes to our website, they leave, and then they go somewhere else. And then we continue advertising to them throughout different websites they go to. And then search ads are when they search, you know, search for things and we show up at the top. I think both of them perform well. Display ads are a little bit more of a long-term game, whereas search ads are more, hey, I see you're looking for car detailing, click on ours, click on ours. That's kind of, you know, how those ones work. And display ads are more of a, a constant reminder that, hey, we're here if you ever need us type of strategy. So they both kind of play their own role. And in terms of average spend, we kind of fluctuate a lot because we're still in the small business phase. So we'll probably fluctuate between, you know, maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred a month um, on the low end to on a, on a really high end of maybe five or six grand a month, really just depending on how much. And that's not just Google, that's Google, Facebook, Yelp. Um, those are our big PPC uh, spends. And so it really just depends on how much we need to drive traffic and fill up our schedule, that's really what determines a lot of it. 
So we are now about halfway through the interview, uh, which is going to bring us to the the Blitz questions section. So these are going to be a little bit more outside the box, a little bit more fun, just to learn a bit, little bit more about you. Uh, so for these, I just want your right off the top of your head, quick answer, 10 to 15 seconds. Here we go. You ready? All right, let's do it. All right. Question number one, what advice would you give to your previous boss if you could? Previous boss? <laughs> Should have gave me more hours at the shop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, nah, nah, previous boss was a cool guy. I appreciate you know the the time I spent at the shop, and yeah, I know he's. As far as advice, I mean, he's running a great company over there, so I, I don't have much to much advice to give him. I think it's just two different business models. So yeah, I, I don't think much advice other than I uh, wish I you know wish I would have got more hours, but but happy I didn't. I love it. All right. Question number two. If I gave you $50,000 to start another business, what business would you start and why? It depends on what your skill set is. I would not lean towards a service-based business, which auto detailing does fall in that category. I think service-based businesses are extremely difficult because you have to manage people on all ends of the spectrum, which is part of why I love it. I get to work with people all the time. And that's basically... I tell everyone, all of our employees, all we are is a bunch of people. We're just we're just people that talk to people and we do stuff for people. It's just a people-based business, which makes it fun and it makes it fulfilling, but it makes it also a big headache sometimes because people have a lot of complexities. You got you got family stuff leaking into work stuff, leaking into personal goals, leaking into the customer experience and everything's kind of intertwined with when everything has to do with people. Now, if I was, so to answer your question, if I was to start something else, it'd be some sort of product. I think products are easier to manage because they are easier to standardize. And I say that with complete ignorance because I've never started a product-based business, but I would imagine if you're making something like sticky notes and you've got a sticky note business, I have sticky notes on my desk. Uh, but if you have a sticky note business, yeah, sure. You have maybe 1% of flaws in the production, like, you know, 1% production flaws or something, but you can figure out how to reduce that. And then the rest of it is just marketing and distribution. So, you know, how do you deliver the product to the customer? How do you market the product to the customer? But the actual product itself is very easy to standardize. Whereas a service it's very difficult to standardize a service because it's coming from people, different people every single time, different weather conditions, different, just a bunch of different variables. Is there a fictional character that you identify with the most? I want to say Rocky from the old Rocky movies, but I recently rewatched it as an adult and he was, uh. he was, a, little, he was a little bit of a creepo. So, <laughs> so I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a refrain from saying Rocky. I think everything else about him is solid. But I'm gonna go with Apollo Creed because he was a little bit more. He had he had a little bit more swagger. He had a little bit. Uh, he wasn't a creepo, so I'll take that. Uh, if you had to work, but you didn't need the money, what would you do? I would probably do research and maybe get my PhD in something really far out there. Something really interesting to think about. Like <laughs> I've always thought things like like dreams. Like why do why do we have dreams? How can we interpret them? really dive deep into researching them. One last blitz question here. Uh, what's your favorite business book and why? So I think last time I was on the uh, the YouTube video, I mentioned Good to Great. The one I'm reading right now is called The E-Myth. So it stands for The Entrepreneurial Myth, which really does talk a lot about 
standardizing your business and basically actually running a business and not just giving yourself a job where you're the owner, but you do everything. So I, I like that one a lot because as you can tell, I'm, I, I like to think a lot about standardization and how to, to minimize my role in the operations of the business. And that's, that's really what that book's about. Awesome. So that's going to do it for our Blitz questions. We're going to get back to talking about the detailing business. You've got a YouTube channel of how-to detailing videos. What's the value of that type of content for a small business? Right now, nothing. Uh, (laughs) Right now, (laughs) our YouTube channel is probably bringing in uh, nothing for us, but we're looking to start pouring into that soon. I think this is something I've learned over the years, which is, for lack of a better term, kind of just pick and choosing my battles. Um, like I said earlier, when I you know didn't have a marketing team or anything, I was kind of the marketing team myself and I couldn't be an expert at everything. And in fact, I was probably an expert at nothing. And trying to push out content across every channel is going to make all the content not that good, not that consistent, um, so on and so forth. So our YouTube channel, we've kind of decided to put that on the back burner for now probably haven't published anything in a while, at least to my knowledge. And so really we're focusing on other channels at the moment. But if we did put into it, which we probably will pretty soon, we'll start pushing some YouTube content. You know, I could see the value. It just comes down to focus. If if YouTube is what we're going to focus on, we need to go hard at it. If Instagram is what we're going to focus on, we need to go hard at it. Trying to do a little bit of everything. I've learned a little bit of Instagram, a little bit of YouTube, a little bit of this, a little bit of that it's not really great at, at much. So right now we're kind of focusing on the core social platforms and kind of our, yeah, yeah that sort of thing. So, you know, and, and SEO is a big one for us, but YouTube will be probably next is what I'm thinking. Can you talk us through your, your, your lead pipeline and how one, you know, once you've, once you've gathered leads, how you've turned them into a paying customer? We don't have necessarily a lead pipeline we get leads mostly through the phone. Like most of the people will just call us. Very rarely do we get form submissions on our website. You know, that, that's kind of few and far between. But we do mostly just try to drive people to our online booking in order to minimize the amount of work for our management team. And then phone calls is, is essentially our leads. But we don't do a ton of marketing to have people fill out forms and gather leads that we can then follow up with and try to convert into a sale. We don't do that too much. We, we kind of rely on customers coming in, clicking on the schedule a detail button and making that process as easy as possible for them. So we can, man- we can like, like I've kind of harped on, is just automating and simplifying everything. If we can get the customer to just, to just do it themselves and just go in there and book it themselves, that's going to save our people time so they can focus on other stuff. And then, so, so then in the booking process, is there any kind of client screening that happens? Um, or is it just sort of, you know, somebody calls you, you book them. Are you trying to red flag any potential difficult customers in any way? We do have booking questions. Yeah. But we don't necessarily stop people from booking based on those questions because usually there's an answer to it. Like, you know, if, if there is something that comes up through those questions, we can kind of maybe reach out and say, Hey, Let's say, for example, if a customer says they don't have power and water at the location, more specifically power, we might say, hey, well, you know, you're at a building. Where's the nearest power outlet? You might not have one right by the by the parking spot, but where's it located at? It, 
we have plenty of extension cord. If we need to bring some extra, we can do so. We try not to turn customers away too much. As far as figuring out if they're going to be a, a relatively difficult or nitpicky customer, pretty hard to tell that in advance. Um, we don't really have too many ways of doing that. So I want to just ask you about your team here. So to first, um, how many employees do you have currently and how many of those are managers? Yeah, so we've got about 10 detailers and like five managers, roughly. And now uh, talk me through the hiring process. Uh, how are you finding high quality employees? And what are you looking for in application and interview that lets you know that they'll be a great fit? So our hiring process is fairly standard. I'll start with managers because it's, it's easier. Usually we try to hire from within. So um, bringing detailers up to become managers. So that's really just, we've known their work ethic. We know how much they're pay, they pay attention to detail. We know how tech savvy or digitally fluent they are. And then we say, hey, you know, you've been with us for a while. We've got this opportunity. We think you'd be a great fit for it. Um, so we try to do that for all the managers. For the detailers, we have a fairly standard process for it. So, you know, you check XYZ box, whether you need to live in a certain region that we're trying to fill, whether you need to have, you know, a certain amount of experience, comfortable with physical labor, stuff like that. Those are all standard things that we look for in an application. If they check those boxes, then we send them an interview invite. If they actually show up to the interview, which you'd be surprised how many people don't, then we basically just make sure that they are able to communicate well and then proceed with the training process, which is another way of filtering because you know we have a fairly robust training schedule and training process. And if they make it to the end of that, then they're probably a pretty good fit. They're usually good to go. That said, we do we do want to work on our retention rate. I think that is one thing that we've worked on a lot in the past six months and, and improved quite a bit. That retention rate comment is really, uh, it leads me into this next question really nicely because I, I'm curious how you motivate your employees um, as a business that is, you know, they're not all coming into the shop together every day. So how are you like motivating them uh, when you're maybe not on the ground with them at every job? Well, we try to have team activities. We try to kind of cross collaborate when possible. So, you know, have people help each other out. We try to be very active digitally and talk to each other a lot through texts and phone calls and stuff like that and just make it feel like they're together. So really a lot of that is just just continuing to be active. And then, of course, pay. <laughs> people work because they want money. So Try to incentivize people a lot with, you know, bonuses and uh, just a good solid pay structure that they can count on. That's really been the, the main thing. And and we we even try to notice if someone hasn't made a lot during the week and we try to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, your paycheck's looking a little less than usual. Do you, you know, do you want to pick up more hours? Are you, you know, you are missing X, Y, and Z bonuses you know, do you understand how to get those? And can we help you get more bonuses? And I, I'll actively tell people, I want you guys to get paid. I want you guys to get paid with the cash money emoji. And I send them the, like, I want you guys to make some good money here. And I think that goes a long way too. Like if people feel like they're just going to get the minimum that a business can pay them and that's it, they're going to be not as motivated. But the, if they feel like the business and them have their incentives aligned and the business wants them to get paid, and they want to get paid, then that's a, a good relationship to have. So I think that's the main thing. Just communicate a lot, stay active, and don't skimp out on, on people that are helping build your business. If, it, if it's good people, get them paid. 
I also know that you you try and be flexible with employee schedules, but can you talk about how you maybe balance employee flexibility with the needs of your clients? Yeah, I basically say you can always take time off as long as you're not booked yet. So that's kind of <laughs> our, that's kind of our motto. If if you've already been booked, then you're booked. You, you got work to do. But if you haven't, then yeah, I don't care. Take the day off. You're not going to get paid that day because you're taking the day off. But you know, it's no sweat off my back. Now, if it comes comes to be a habit and they're taking tons of days off, then it's just a question going back to your question of kind of assessing ROI and saying, hey, you're using thousands of dollars of equipment and you're only performing, you know, two jobs a week or something like that. I could give that equipment to someone else that's going to perform five jobs a week. What's the deal here? Let's talk through this. Is this something that's going to be permanent? Are you going to turn it around? And then you assess, okay, is it is it going to be worth it to bring someone else on? Because, you know, maybe this person doesn't even value the job that much. And a lot of times that's kind of an employee's way of saying, hey, I kind of want to quit, but I'm too nice of a person to quit because I know it's a small business and I don't want to do that to the owner. And sometimes that's that's a telltale sign that they want out anyway and they have other things they want to do with their life. That's perfectly fine with us. We We tell people from the start, we want you to get to where you want to be. And if detailing for us is a stepping stone, then we're more power to you. And we've sent people to Nintendo. We've sent people to Deloitte, KPMG. We've sent people to Boeing. We've sent people to go be software developers. We try to we try to have our business be a, a place where they can learn not only detailing, but skills that will apply to all different types of industries, especially if they're college kids that are you know using this as a source of income trying to have it be a source of mentorship as well. In terms of your own workload, what leadership tasks are you overseeing and kind of directly taking on as the owner? And what are you delegating to your managers? I pretty much delegate all operational tasks to managers. So, you know, operations will have to do with customer communications, detailer communications, schedule management, inventory, marketing, financial management, stuff like that. Try to delegate all that stuff. And then I try to focus on more strategic things that are going to drive growth or make their lives easier, cut costs, stuff like that. So, you know, whether it's improving our, our software systems, you know, all our different spreadsheets and, and documents, improving our what, whatever systems we're using, I, I pretty much just focus on those. And then it, I guess big administrative stuff like documents I have to sign, our insurance, sort, you know, sourcing good insurance policies and filing taxes and, and stuff like that. That'll probably be the last thing that I let go of that is somewhat operational, but that'll be pretty far down the road. Mobile detailing is an increasingly crowded industry. How do you stand out from your competition at Biggs Mobile Detailing? Well, number one, we try to make it as convenient as possible because people are so busy, especially nowadays with a lot of people working from home, people want that convenience. So that's one way that as far as the customer experience end goes. Then as far as customer service goes, all of our people know how to talk to people. We're not, we're going to be extremely friendly, presentable. We're going to show up and make sure it's a, a very professional job because not only are we talking to you, but we're talking to your neighbors. We're going to be talking to, we're going to be in your driveway, in your community. And so we want it to be something that you're proud of. And so being very presentable, professional, that's another aspect. So convenience, professionalism, 
And then the third is obviously quality. And I guess there's a fourth, but I'll, I'll talk to quality um, for this point. I kind of don't like to say quality because, of course, everyone's going to say that. And you're, you're not going to go to a detailing company and they're going to say, well, our quality, quality is mediocre and we use pretty crappy products. So I think quality is kind of not something I try to even talk to because it's kind of a given because that's why you're hiring us in the first place. So yeah, quality, you know, our products are, are, you know, all good, high quality products. I think in terms of quality, you could say our training process is something that makes us stand out a little bit. We try to have really robust training processes. And I guess here is one thing that makes us stand out in terms of quality is the fact that going back to simplicity, standardization, and automation, that also is how we shape our services because the more complex your services are, the more complicated they are, the more room for error there is. And I think I said this in the YouTube video, auto detailing quality is not the, the, the marginal difference between one polish versus another polish or one leather conditioner versus another leather conditioner. It's not that different. Really what makes detailing quality different is how well-trained and how good of an eye the auto detailer has. And so in order to maximize that on our end, we've simplified the processes. So really all we provide is really the same service. It's inside, outside, or the whole thing. And all three of those packages, they follow the same exact process. So that kind of like a, what's it called? I don't know. Let's say Jersey Mike's. They're, they're one of my favorite. sub. I, I was going to say Subway, but I don't want to compare us to Subway. Let's say Jersey Mike's. I like Jersey Mike's. And you know you're going to get the same thing every time. And that allows it to be such a high quality product. Every employee, they, they know exactly what to do every single time. And so with detailing a car, we kind of follow that philosophy with quality. The fourth thing sets us apart is we're eco-friendly. And so this is something new from this past year, starting in January. We use zero water. So we're 100% steam cleaning inside and outside of your vehicle is steam. And so there's zero water runoff into the drains, which goes into the rivers, which goes into the, you know, into the ocean and everything. And so that's something we, we really pride ourselves in. And it's not an easy task because the equipment is expensive. So I wouldn't expect every detailing company to start off that way. But I think as you start to build up the budget for it, it's a worthwhile investment because it's, it's good for the community. And so that's something that's been helpful for us as well and sets us apart. If someone were starting a mobile detailing business today, what are what are some of the current trends or challenges that they should be aware of that maybe weren't a factor when you got started? I think the one you just hit on, competition. I think when I first got started, I was probably one of a handful of mobile detailers. Now, I think it's a lot more common and even traditional shops have like a mobile service. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. Other than that, I mean, not a lot has changed. Gas prices, <laughs> shoot, <laughs> that's that's going to be a, a little bit more expensive for you. Yeah, gas prices have gone up quite a bit. This isn't specific to mobile detailing, but uh, or even to detailing, just as a business owner in general. I think employee wages and expectations have gone up a lot. You know, so you have to factor that into your budget. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's actually something that forces you to develop your business more efficiently and forces you to 
actually, let me spin this another way too. It allows you to have higher expectations of your employees as well. The, the take we've had on it is forget minimum wage. We're going to pay you guys as much as humanly possible or as, as much as possible within our business model and maximize that. But we're also going to expect you to do a lot and treat it more like a really professional job. And going back to what sets us apart from other detailing companies is, you know that whoever's showing up to your house is getting paid quite a bit. And so that leads into the professionalism. It leads into the quality. Whereas other shops, you're probably gonna have someone making minimum wage or really close to minimum wage. So ours are more than double minimum wage. And so that's, that's going to be a big, a big aspect. Isaiah, uh, last time on the YouTube video, you talked about franchising. So I just wanted to follow up with you on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, last year that was kind of our, that was our North star and, and it still is our North star where everything we're doing is focused on getting to a place where we can franchise. And we're much closer this year. I think we have made a slight pivot where it's not necessarily going to be franchises in the sense of that as our legal entity, but potentially just branches where people are starting up different branches. And I'll probably start this year down in Los Angeles and open up a branch and having regional support. We've transitioned our team, our management team to where they can support more at a regional level. So whether a customer calls from Los Angeles or Portland or wherever, they could call the same phone number, they could book, be booked through the same software system, and it's just a matter of dispatching certain employees from certain areas. So I don't think we'll do a formal franchise. We've kind of pivoted from that. We'll likely do some, some form of joint venture where people are maybe sponsoring, you know, startup costs in a certain city or something. We'll, we'll have to, we'll have to work with our legal team on how to structure it and how to structure the entities, but that's still coming. We're still kind of at that formation stage and we want to make sure it's perfect and prove out the, the profit model and, and the margins that each location should be making and, and that sort of thing before we fully start offering that to people. But Structuring our business like a franchise is still what we're aiming towards and standardizing things, automating things, which is all in the nature of becoming a franchise. And as you further develop that uh, model, we'll have to be have you back here on the podcast to ask more about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. I think it could be a summertime and an annual summertime thing. Last question here for you. Um, what's your biggest frustration or struggle and what are you doing to, to make that easier? It's definitely been going back to your question about if I had $50,000, what business would I start? I think a service-based business is inherently going to have a lot of struggles around people and training and quality controls because it's people servicing people, which are then being supported and trained by other people. It's just a lot of humans and humans are naturally going to have a lot of variables in their life. And that leads into the overall product and experience that you're trying to deliver. And so it's a lot of different variables that you have to manage and you have to manage them in a human way. You can't, you can't be super harsh and you can't be super soft. You have to be somewhere in the middle when it, when it comes to dealing with these human things. So I, I think that's the biggest struggle, finding good people, managing them well, managing their interactions with other people managing 
the service that they provide as a person to an inanimate object, training them. There, there's just a lot of different variables moving around every single day. So I, I think it's, it's the people aspect, which is also the fun part. I like knowing that every employee is someone who's got a unique life and a unique set of circumstances that we can try to try to help and try to make improve from whatever angle that we're able to. So it's the biggest frustration. It's also the biggest motivation and, it, and it's sometimes the most fulfilling part of the business. That's going to do it for this episode of the Upflip podcast. Um, for those of you out there listening, make sure you also check out our hub, uh, upflip.com slash learn, where we break down how to start a business step-by-step from market research, developing a business plan all the way through the launch. And then uh, keep checking out the podcast here every week where we're interviewing fascinating, interesting, wonderful entrepreneurs about what they're doing, how they're scaling their businesses so you can do the same. Isaiah Barhum of Big Detailing, thanks for joining us. All right, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I will talk to you soon.